on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. The U.S. House has approved a massive $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan. It includes a new round of direct payments to eligible individuals and families, more unemployment benefits for jobless Americans, and an increase for the child tax credit, among other things. It also includes a gradual increase of the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025. That provision is probably going to be stripped from the Senate version of the bill. Critics on both sides of the aisle have said this $1,400 direct check part of the bill is not enough. And Republicans are claiming it's a wasteful grab bag of excessive spending. All of this now goes to the Senate, where it could come down to a 50-50 split with Vice President Kamala Harris casting the tie-breaking vote. Here to talk about the COVID relief package and more news from Washington is Congressman Andy Levin, a Democrat from Bloomfield who represents Michigan's 9th District. Congressman, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. It's great to be with you. Good to hear your voice. Yes, good to hear yours as well. So what's your reaction to this version of the bill that the House adopted late last week? Of course, all legislation is compromised. There are some significant ones in this, but talk about uh, the high points and some things that maybe you're a little disappointed about. Well, I'm certainly disappointed about um, the minimum wage situation. We can talk about that. But I think it's important to frame it, as you say. It's such a, a, a massive piece of legislation that basically we in the House were working on the entire second half of last year, and we could never get it done. And now we have a president who says we must meet this crisis at scale. And so this package really does it. To hit the highlights, it puts vaccines in people's arms. It'll mount a national vaccination program. The president has already increased doses by 70% since he took office. I think we can double the number of doses again in 60 days or so, um, and it's going to take a lot more resources. We're going to need to scale up testing, contact tracing, address shortages of PPE, and so forth. The second big thing it does is it helps put kids safely back in school. About $130 billion investment in school reopening for everything from more personnel to the um, HVAC problems of circulation and purification of air and on and on. It puts money in people's pockets in many ways. It does plus up the the checks. They were $600. The president promised to get up to $2,000, so there's $1,400 extra for for poor for for middle class poor people working class people not for well better off people um it there's a lot of housing assistance nutrition assistance for 40 million Americans um it expands access to safe and reliable child care and expands access to health care it puts money in people's pockets by extending and expanding unemployment insurance there's 19 million American workers who are on unemployment And you mentioned the child tax credit. That's going to be huge. 27 million kids will get a benefit from that at a time when more kids are in poverty and going hungry. And it would, the way we passed it, it would give uh, 27 million workers a raise through um, through the uh, you know the minimum wage increase. It also has a lot of uh, support for small businesses um, in many ways. And you know I've been a big advocate of that. And finally. 
for the first time, it would get significant aid to local governments. It helps state governments, but we have really done nothing for local governments like I represent, the 21 jurisdictions in the 9th District, governments with less than 500,000 people. And we've got 1.5 million jobs lost in state and local government during the pandemic. And people forget about that. <laughs> so those are our first responders, our public nurses, so on and so forth. And we've got to put those people back to work. We saw during the Great Recession, Stephen, that we lagged, lagged, lagged in the recovery because we didn't pay attention to public sector employment and that we've taken care of that with this package. So let's start with this $1,400 in direct payments to Americans. We did just have a bill passed last year that put a little money in people's pockets. This puts a little more. But the big question is, is any of this enough? And should we be talking seriously about recurring payments to people for as long as the economic disruption goes on? Well, you know, if, if I was czar, I mean, <laughs> I think we should have combined the, the business aid with the aid to people and done what more many European countries did, was simply for everybody who had been working, say to companies, we will uh, keep, instead of paying people who are unemployed, we will keep people on your payroll instead of paying super expensive COBRA benefits for people who need health care after they lost their job, we will basically subsidize people's wages and health care to keep them on the payroll. It would help keep businesses, especially small businesses, intact. It would greatly reduce their costs and um, difficulties of starting up again if they've had to shrink or even stop business. And so that was a different design, but we didn't do that. And so we certainly... Uh, need to do this. And I think we should do more. I think that the child tax credit is a terrific idea and a somewhat bipartisan idea that we've that we've got to see through to the end where we actually do put um, 500 bucks um, even a month into, uh, you know, the households with, with kids who are low income. And that is kind of a recurring payment. It's a new idea. Senator Romney supports it. And so that's one advance. So, you know, we, there's a lot of work to do, and this this bill, I think, gets a significant amount done. But as you say, it's not perfect. So, so one of the hurdles here, of course, is the the Congress itself. And I, I just want to remind people over and over that even though we have Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress right now. There, there is not unanimity about these issues. And there are Democrats who are hesitant about the idea of recurring payments. There are Democrats who are hesitant about the idea of a $15 an hour minimum wage. And, and I think there was a lot of anticipation when Joe Biden was elected president and Democrats took over both houses of Congress that it, these things would be easier and they may be incrementally easier but but there are still going to have to be compromises and this bill represents those those compromises even among democrats 100% i mean that's really true and i think you know the fact that the the administration doesn't seem to want to fight harder for uh the $15 an hour minimum wage by 2025 reflects the the narrowness of the majority of this of the Democrats in the Senate and the fact that a couple of Democratic senators 
have expressed hesitation about going for $15 an hour at all. You know, if you look at it, Stephen, the lowest cost uh, area in the country is evidently Beckley, West Virginia. So that's in Senator Manchin's state. And he's one of the people who said he would not support $15 an hour. Well, Fifteen dollars an hour in 2025 in Beckley, West Virginia, in his state, the lowest cost area according to the census in the country. If you had a two-parent and two-kid household, and both parents were making fifteen, working full time and making fifteen dollars an hour in 2025, they would be a few hundred dollars short of being able to meet their basic monthly expenses. Mm. I'm not talking about any vacations or buying cars, you know. So we really need $15 an hour by 2025 as a floor of decency. But as you say, politics is complicated. The, you know, we barely hung on to the Senate after those Georgia incredible wins and our margin in the House is narrow. But you know what my view is, Stephen? We must deliver for the American people right now. Mm. There's too much pain. There's you know, it's, it, there's so much inequality. Uh, we've got to do it. And so I've been one of those pushing that the Senate should make it. Uh, we're, we're the elected officials, <laughs> not the parliamentarian. And I totally respect the parliamentarian's view, but it's just an advisory position. There's plenty of history of Republicans and Democrats saying to the parliamentarian, thank you very much for that very erudite view. <laughs> and we have a different view. And we're going to move forward with our we think our legislation is appropriate. I don't think that's going to happen, but I'm pushing hard for it to happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm talking with Congressman Andy Levin, a Democrat from Bloomfield Township who represents Michigan's 9th District in Congress. We're talking about the COVID relief bill that passed the House last week is on its way to the Senate where it faces some tough challenges, uh, but probably will end up uh, being passed uh, by the Democratic majority there and then signed by President Joe Biden. We're talking about the compromises that went into the House version of the bill and whether those compromises will hold up in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Andy, if if the Senate parliamentarian does not relent uh, and the Senate does not stand up uh, to to that person and say, we're going to we're going to do it anyway, uh, are there other paths to raise the minimum wage or to give employers incentives to raise their wages that that you think could have more traction, I guess, uh, in the Congress? This $15 an hour uh, uh, raising the minimum wage, I know, is, is if it passes, it will be on a very razor-thin uh, uh, margin. Are there other things that might get more more support? Well, you know, the Senate was looking at uh, tax, using tax incentives and basically uh, requiring uh, corporations that pay less than that to pay more taxes. And that's, that would actually be appropriate because basically the way our policies work in this country, we subsidize McDonald's and Walmart and other huge companies that pay poverty wages – because we allow them to pay poverty wages, then we give earned income tax credits to the workers who didn't mm-hmm. make enough. Mm-hmm. And we have food stamps and other programs that they need that the ta- we, the taxpayers, pay for because the, 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 comp- the boss isn't paying the worker enough to live on. 
And so it would make sense to do that. The Senate in this instance, though, Stephen, didn't have time to figure it out. I think we're going to keep coming back to this uh, because this is so popular. I mean, if you look, look at Florida, in, you may know this by heart, I don't, but I think roughly Donald Trump won Florida by 50 and a half or 51 to mm-hmm. 48 mm-hmm. in November. Let's say something, it was close to that. In that same state of Florida, a $15 an hour minimum wage was on the ballot in November, and it won 61 to 39 mm. in Florida. <laughs> you know, so this is popular with Republicans, independents, and Democrats, and we must find a way to raise the wages of American workers. We have to let them form unions if they want. And I'm going to be going down at the end of this week to support the workers in Bessemer, Alabama, who are trying to form a union with, uh, this is the first time I'm saying it publicly, but I'll be down there with a delegation uh, that I helped organize of, of Congress people to support, and I think it's an 85 to 90% African-American workforce, very young, 58 or 5,900 workers, Stephen, mm. at an Amazon warehouse. It's, to me, the David and Goliath story of the 21st century so far in terms of labor relations. Amazon has been doing everything they can to keep these workers from forming a union, and we're going to go down there and just say, hey, we, we're with you and support them. Yeah, that was actually one of the questions on my list was about you leading this group of 50 members of Congress in a letter to Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos that expressed wor- support for, for those workers who are trying to, to unionize. Uh, talk about what that issue illustrates about our workforce and about unionization in 2021. I mean, unionizing workers in Bessemer, Alabama, I mean, I could I could have uttered that phrase in the 1960s, uh, for instance, uh, about other kinds of plants. We're in 2021, and we're still talking about how workers need the right to, to collectively bargain. Well, you know, African-American workers have been discriminated against by official policy of the country since... Yes. I mean, the actual National Labor Relations Act that we passed in 1935 excluded domestic workers and farm workers because Southern senators wouldn't vote for it if it included those groups that were mostly black. So that's a long history. And, of course, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. died helping public sector workers, sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. who were marching around with a sign that said, I am a man just wanting the basic dignity of having their own organization. And they did organize with AFSCME. But the situation in this country in 2021, Stephen, is that in the private sector, only 6% of workers have a union when 49% of, of workers, according to MIT, a recent very good study, said they were non-union workers said they'd like to have a union if they could. But it just, the rules are so unfair that workers uh, have to run a gauntlet of intimidation by their boss. I mean, this, Amazon has put out so much propaganda that it's in the men's room. I assume the women's room, <laughs> the picture I saw was a stall in the men's room with, with saying vote against the union. Mm. Amazon, the, the, the union uh, organizers were talking to workers at a stoplight right outside where the employee parking lot was. Amazon went to the city of Bessemer, Stephen, and got them to change the stoplight so it goes green as soon as someone pulls up wow. to prevent even people talking about it. 
So this case shows why we've got to pass the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act, and finally free up workers to form unions again. It's the number one thing we could do to reduce wealth and income inequality in this country. And it would, it would be a just law for other reasons that the wage gap between women and men and between black and Latino workers and white workers is much less in unionized workforces. And union workers just make more and have better benefits altogether. America really needs that right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Congressman Andy Levin about the things that are going on in Washington, the COVID relief bill. Uh, arguments about uh, the $15 minimum wage as part of that bill uh, and other and other things that uh, our lawmakers are up to. Uh, before I, I let you go, I want to talk about the Equality Act, which I know you're a big proponent of, and the House passed that last week as well. I wonder what your expectations are for it in the Senate and what should happen if the Senate fails to to pass this bill and send it on to the president? Well, you know, Stephen, I, I made a little video walking to, the, to the, 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 the Capitol to vote for the Equality Act. And I think it was, I mean, honestly, it was a little bit of a naive moment. I was so excited to pass this legislation for the second time in the House that, would simply, that simply says, no matter who you love, no matter how you, you know, what your identity is, all Americans are equal. It's so basic. And I said, we're going to pass it, and the Senate's going to pass it and get it to the president's desk. Well, are they? <laughs> and this issue of the filibuster and not having simple majority rule in the Senate is a really difficult one. Um, we, today, Stephen, we're going to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and H.R. 1, I don't mean to exhaust your listeners, but we are moving a lot of legislation in the House. Mm -hmm. And I do worry that even though we have won the majority in the Senate, we still won't be able to move our agenda because it takes 60 votes instead of 51 to pass things in the Senate. It shouldn't be that way. I'm in an ongoing debate with my beloved Uncle Carl, who's much more of an expert on this than me after 36 (laughs) years in the Senate. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you know, (laughs) there there are – look, there's a terrible history behind the filibuster, and it's linked to Jim Crow and – and other things, I think, make it make it very difficult to defend as an institution. At the same time, the idea of just letting the Senate run wild with simple majorities, I mean, it, it really does run contrary to the to the basic idea of the Senate as being different from the House and a place where cooler heads sometimes need to prevail. Do you worry that if you do that, you're going to have to put up with Republican majorities doing pretty pretty obnoxious things if if and when they get control again. So as you suggest, the history of the filibuster is really the idea that it's this sort of a wonderful tradition of a deliberative body that needs to be preserved. Stephen, the only thing literally that the filibuster was ever used for for 150 years was to thwart civil rights legislation. Yeah. The only thing. And um, it's, I just, you know, I think it's breathtaking. What if we have confidence in the American people? 
what if I say, what if I affirm Stephen as a Democrat right here after other people tried to thwart an election, a peaceful transfer of power, that you know what? If I lose, my team loses an election, I'm willing to put up with the consequences. Yeah. And I'm willing to honestly debate issues and get the public to vote for my side again so we can move our agenda. I'm not for gridlock. I'm for, letting, I'm for letting the people who win elections run their program and then letting the American people decide whether they like the results. And right now, the American people are crying out for tackling systemic racism, tackling our massive overheating of our planet to the point where we have to fight to preserve life as we know it on Earth mm. to tackle this public health crisis Joe Biden's doing a great job out of the gate, but we have a lot of work to do. And I personally think that it would be better if the Senate could just vote up or down the ideas that we have to help the American people. Okay. Uh, Congressman Andy Levin, who represents Michigan's 9th District in Congress. Always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much. for coming Thanks, on. Stephen. Take good care. I'll talk yeah. to you soon. We'll talk to you soon. We're going to take a quick break come back, we are going to talk about the newly approved Johnson & Johnson vaccine with an emergency physician at Henry Ford Health System who has been leading their vaccine community outreach efforts in underserved communities. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.